0: Once we have sought you to be our vision, we've exhorted ourselves to rise in service to you. We've rejoiced together that our Redeemer lives and gloried in his great victory and the blessings that he has won for us and gives to us and is to us. And now we come to hear you speak to us in your word. But what use, what use if you speak and we do not hear? Open our ears that we might be instructed encouraged, directed, and oh God, oh God, we pray, do not let one word of yours fall to the ground. Let your word word come on us with power. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I worked on this sermon, all of the symptoms began showing themselves. I, uh, towards the end of the week, found myself thinking, oh boy, I'm not going to be able to spend as much time on that as I really ought to. Oh, boy, I wish I could get into that a little more deeply. Well, I'm really going to have to talk fast. Oh, boy, this is going to be packed. And you know what? I eventually figure out when that happens long enough. This is two sermons. So it's going to be two sermons. In fact, Chad mentioned Ephesians for every good reason. We will look at Ephesians, Lord willing, next week. But this week we'll just look at the first of three points so that we don't rush through it because it's worth taking our time. And we're not a church under an overseeing bishop or whatever telling us what our preaching schedule has to be. Our point is not to hurry, but it's to take in the word of God. Amen? Amen. So last week we discussed how to overcome the world and our focus was understanding what the world is how to understand what it is we're to overcome, and uh, understanding that the world is self-seeking, self-will, self-orientation, opposing our will and our judgment against the lordship and the person of God. Uh, And so we saw that that world is our default setting since the fall of Adam, and that we all naturally look at the world that way, that we don't think our way out of it, we don't reason our way out of it, we don't will our way out of it, we need to be saved out of it. And the only person who can save us out of it is the Lord Jesus. He overcome the world, He overcame the world, and He alone overcame the world, and He chose us out of the world. And by His electing grace, He delivered us, as Paul says in Galatians 1 he gave himself to deliver us out of this present evil age and as he the lord jesus said in john 14:15 he chose us to be out of the world and he reflects that again in his high priestly prayer in john 17 So we're able to overcome the world because Jesus overcame the world, and we are in Jesus, and Jesus saves us from the world. Now I'd like to turn and focus on some of the specifics of living as overcomers, what it means to live in a way that overcomes the world. As Scripture tells us, who is the one who overcomes the world but the one who believes that Jesus is the Christ? Our faith overcomes the world, Scripture tells us. So how do we live that? Our focus is going to be practical. It's going to be how to. And it's all going to revolve around the stance of the believer, meaning what is our mindset? What is our frame of thinking? What is our posture as we live in the world and get up and live through every day? So uh, the first and all-important element of this will be our only focus today, and that is seeking. One characteristic of the stance of the one who overcomes the world is seeking. There will be three necessary elements of this that we'll look at today. First, we're going to see that we must seek with focused mind. That's capital letter A. We must seek with focused mind. And to understand that, please turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Where we'll look at verses 1 through 3. We must seek with focused mind. So having laid out the glories of Christ and applied it to the false teaching that they were being tempted by in Colossae, uh, Paul turns to this in chapter 3, what we've called chapter 3. He just called it the next thing I write (laughs) since he didn't write down the chapter numbers. Paul writes on the basis of all these grand truths of Christ, Therefore... If you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you died, and your life has been hidden with Christ in God. So much here, but let's just first of all uh, lift out from this the direction of our seeking. Number one, the direction of our seeking. And what is that direction? Well, it's above. He says, Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So obviously, the one who seeks above is transcending what in his focus? The world, the things of the world. He's mentioned that in chapter 2. That's the focus of the false teacher. Uh, His little laws and rituals had a lot to do with the things of the world, the worldly elements, the basic elements of the world. But Paul says, no, no, don't seek that. Seek the things that are above. Now, to understand this, turn to Ephesians. We'll be there a little bit. So we will be in Ephesians this week, just not chapter 6 so much. But turn to chapter 1. How is Christ seated at the right hand of God. He existed in the form of God. He humbled himself to the form of a slave. He died the the disgraceful death of the cross. He was buried, and then what? Well, he was raised from the grave, but that isn't the end of it. Everything after the cross for Christ is up. So first, he's raised up from the grave, but what happens after that? Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Speaking of the power that God works in us, it's the same power which he worked in Christ by raising him from the dead, that's the first step up, but that's not the end, and seating him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So, Christ, as a reward for his uh, completing the will of the Father and submitting himself to death, is raised not only from the grave, but he's raised to the Father's right hand, to the helm of the universe. And at the Father's right hand, he's above everything. He's above Caesar, he's above the Speaker of the House. He's above the president. He's above Satan. He's above all rule and authority and power. And he's at the right hand of the Father. This is where he is today. If we're to seek him, that's where he's to be sought. Not in visions on pieces of toast. Not in outpourings or this or that in different parts of the globe. He's not in any of those places. His body is not. It's glorified, resurrected, ascended to the right hand of the Father. And will return from that point back to this earth one day. But this is not... This so far is not that day. <laughs> this so far is not that day. So, the glory is that in His being raised up from the grave and to the right hand of the Father, you and I too, believer, have been raised with Him and seated at the right hand of the Father. <gasps> Daring thought? Well, not spite well, it is indeed, but look at chapter 2. Chapter 2, speaking of God's great grace to us and how we were dead in trespasses and sins, but verse for God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. His resurrection became my spiritual resurrection. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So when Paul says in Colossians 3, one, therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ... We need to understand he's not saying, if you've been raised up with Christ, and I know some of you Christians have, and some of you Christians haven't. The really consecrated ones have, but the ones who haven't had the the deeper life experience have not. No, no, this is what's called a first-class conditional. He is saying this as a true thing. If you've been raised up with Christ, and you have, And so we see it here in Ephesians 1, reflected as well, that as Christ was raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of the Father, because by God's grace, I am united with Christ. I share his resurrection life, and positionally, I'm with him in heaven. So my interests are in heaven as well, and I am with him as he sits at the Father's right hand. I heard a preacher made a great point of this at Talbot Chapel decades ago when I was in seminary, and uh, he said that uh, it's common for Christians to, to ask each other, well, how are you doing? And the answer is, well, I'm doing as well as I can under the circumstances. And he says, under the circumstances, Christ has been raised from the dead to the right hand of the Father, and you are in Him. How can you be under the circumstances? Christ is over the circumstances, and you're in Christ. And it's there that Paul raises, uh, directs our attention. We're not to seek the things of the world. We're to seek the things of Christ. And that is going to bring us not to the accolades of this world and the values and the great important pressing tragedies and triumphs and uh, uh, crises of this world, because there's always a crisis and we're always dying of something. So we need the world alone to solve our real problems. But this isn't our real problem. And it's not our real life. Our real life is at the right hand of the Father because that's where Christ is. Look. Where our Lord is, there our life is. And where is our Lord? He's at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places. So where should our life be? It should be with Jesus at the right hand of the Father in heavenly places. He's not under the circumstances, neither should I be. And this is why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, and the fuller meaning had to be brought out by the events of the cross and the ascension, He says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 19-21, 33, note it down. What does he say? Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Literally, don't treasure up treasures for yourself on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, what? There your heart will be. And Paul is calling us to put our heart in heaven. To see where is our treasure? Our treasure is in heaven at the right hand of God. Jesus is our treasure. And where your treasure is, there your heart will be. And if our heart is not there, it's because we don't treasure Jesus as we should. And that's what Paul calls us to do. And then Jesus says in verse 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you have you ever noticed this is just an aside no extra charge have you ever noticed that the person who says he's having trouble with his spiritual life and hardly ever prays or reads the bible because he's got to do this and this and this and the other thing he never has enough time but have you noticed also that the person who prioritizes Christ and his word finds time to do everything else have you seen that in your own life I've seen that in my own life I was in seminary. At one point, I had 21 units um, of graduate work, and it was tough stuff. But I always got up and spent time in the Word and in prayer first. I'm certainly not bragging. I'm just making this point. I had nothing to brag about. Uh, But I'm just making the point that as I did this, I found I could do everything else. But if that's what you do after you do everything else, what happens? Never really end up having time to spend in the Word. This principle applies there. I'm giving you a very practical point. This is a very practical exhortation from Jesus Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added for you. That is a reorientation of our life that Scripture calls us to. And that's the believer's stance. Our direction is towards heaven where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Secondly, where is our affection? A-F-F-E-C, our affection. Our affection is what we really love, what we're really interested in, what we really think about when we don't have to think about something else, what we like to think about. It's where our heart goes, as we would say. Well, what does Paul say about that? Uh, He says in verse uh, 2, set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. It's also been translated, set your affections on heaven. As uh, Bishop Lightfoot said, great commentator of the 1800s, we must not only seek heaven, we must think heaven. It affects the way we think and what we think about. The, the Greek verb phroneo is, it has to do with a, a mindset, a mental frame, a mental orientation. Not just thinking about things, but what I like to think about. What lights me up. What really makes my eyes light up. You've been talking to somebody about something and and he chats about this, he chats about that, but oh boy, then when he gets on baseball or he gets on fishing or he gets on politics or whatever, then the eyes light up and he's all engaged. Well, Paul is saying make sure that what lights you up is the things above, is heaven, is Christ, the person of Christ. And I'm going to probably make this point several times, but I want to make this point, if you're listening and you're saying, Well, that isn't me, that's interesting. No, wait a minute. If that isn't us, then that's a problem. It's like if we're at the doctor and the doctor says, well, your blood pressure's okay, your weight's okay, you've got a lump that concerns me, I think your breathing is okay, what would you say? Wait, wait, go back to that part about the lump, right? (laughs) I need to hear about that. That one could kill me. This is a lump if Christ doesn't light us up, if we don't care about Him, He doesn't interest us, we only open a Bible when we have to, when we're made to, because it's in church or something, we don't necessarily pray, we don't really think about Him, what we really like to talk about is this or that or the other thing, that's a lump. That's something, stop right there and take it to God. We need to get serious about this. It's not a game. Affection, set your minds on heaven. the opposite is the person who has no interest in the things of God, but he's calling us to have all interest in the things of God. We see this in Scripture a good bit. David had this spirit. Think of that. David, before the incarnation, before the crucifixion, before Pentecost and the pouring out of the Spirit of God, still he says, Psalm twenty-seven, four: One One thing I've asked from Yahweh, that I shall seek. What one thing? Great crown? What, what did it say? Say it. Amen. He says that I may dwell in the house of Yahweh all the days of my life to behold the beauty of Yahweh and to inquire in his temple. That was his greatest good, to seek Yahweh, to see his beauty, to reflect and dwell on him and worship him. Uh, Also, Hebrews 12. uh, Take a quick look there with me, please. Hebrews chapter 12. Well-known verses, but maybe I can pick out something that hasn't, leapt out to you before. So Hebrews 12, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, chapter 11 surrounding us, all testifying to the importance of faith, laying aside every weight and the sin which so easily entangles us, well, that's everything, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Ah, yes, the metaphor of a race. Great, we all should be running a race. Well, you tell me run, I'm going to have a question. Why and where? Why and where? Well, the why is we're running from the world's entanglements because it wants to kill us. Where do I run? Verse 2, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Just like, just like what Paul's saying in Colossians 3. So as I run, I fix my eyes on Jesus. So what am I running to? I'm running to Jesus. I'm running where my eyes are looking. (laughs) And my eyes, he says, the the Greek verb is the idea of looking away to Jesus. Looking away from all the shiny objects of the world that seek to distract me every hour of every day. Looking away from them and looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of faith. So I run to Jesus. For so many it would be a great improvement if they even shambled slowly towards Jesus, but he calls us to run with focus and discipline to Jesus. That's our goal. So an overcomer it seeks above, not the things of the world. An overcomer's affection is trained on Jesus, on the things of heaven, the things of God, on his Lord Jesus who sits at the right hand of God, not the things of the world. He's not drawn to the things of the world. An overcomer has an, his affection set on Jesus Thirdly, we've got to consider the aspect of rejection. There's an aspect of rejection in uh, Colossians 3. If you've been raised up with Christ, well, if I was raised up, what was I before? <laughs> well, I was dead. Resurrected person, you know. If you want to have a resurrection, here's the, here's the uh, ingredients. One dead person and the ability to raise him. So we were dead and we were raised to new life with Christ. But read on. He says, uh, set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth, for you died, and your life has been hidden with Christ and God. The kind of two deaths, isn't it? isn't it interesting? First, I was dead to God, and as Ephesians 1 says, walking around in my sins, and now what am I dead to? Sin and the world, and I'm alive to God. I was alive to the world and dead to God, but now in Christ I am dead to the world and alive to God. Now, this is something that you see again and again in Scripture, this pattern. This is the uh, necessary pattern of growth. There's no getting around this. There's always a putting off and a putting on. He who steals, let him steal no longer, but let him work so that he might have to give away to those who are in need. on and on, put this off and put this on. And so here's the base of it, the, the, the root of it. Basically, we've died to sin and we're alive to Christ. So every day, though, though this death and resurrection was a punctiliar thing, it happened at one point. It happened when we were saved. But every day we apply that and live that out. Read Romans 6. This is something that we need to live out every day. Every day we count ourselves dead to sin and present ourselves alive to God and our parts as instruments of righteousness to God. And so he says, for you died What did we read last week? By the cross, we're cut off from the world. Galatians 6, Paul says, God forbid that I should... I always fall back to the King James, don't you, when you're memorizing. God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of Jesus Christ, by which I was crucified to the world and the world was crucified to me. That is what cuts the tether, the cross does. And so we died... There's a rejection, and every day there needs to be a fresh rejection, a reminder to ourselves that we don't live to the world, we don't seek the things of the world, we're alive to God. We seek the things of God. Our heart's in heaven where Christ is. Our Lord's in heaven, so our life is in heaven. So pursue that and cultivate that, engage in that, reject the other. So direction, affection, rejection, and there is a depiction in the teaching of Christ. I remind you we're here not too long ago in Matthew 13. Don't need to turn there. Just hear it. You're familiar with it. Matthew 13, 44 through 46. What's the picture? The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again, and very reluctantly and slowly and gradually Bit by bit, he sold off a little bit, and a little bit, and a little bit, and by the time he got everything sold off, someone else had already gotten the treasure. Is that how the, that how the parable goes? <laughs> no, he finds treasure hidden in the field, and from joy over it, Jesus says, he goes and sells all he has and buys the field. He finds something that is worth more than everything he has. Have you found something worth more than everything you had in the world? and every Christian should answer with all his heart, yes, I found Jesus. Jesus is worth more than everything I had in the world. And so dead to that, we live to Christ. Dead to that, we gladly and joyously seek Christ. It's not a hobby or a technicality, it's our life. So, and then he goes on to talk about the merchant seeking fine pearls. Finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all he had, And bought it. What was the cost to both of these men? Well, everything. What was the gain to both of these men? Everything. And did either man feel bad about what he'd lost? Not at all. Great joy. That is the overcomer's attitude. He rejects the world, gladly gives it up because he's found his great treasure in Jesus Christ. Now, by application, then, number five. I just would ask you to please think seriously with me and seriously ask yourself these questions. Did we find a lump as we were talking? Did a lump show up, something concerning on the the x-ray? Well, then, let's take that seriously. Are we persuaded that seeking Christ is worth the loss of the world? What is it worth investing to cultivate my relationship with Christ? If there's something that takes up all our time and doesn't leave us the time to spend with Christ, is that thing worth giving up, whatever it is? And I'm, you're saying, oh, but I don't drink or do drugs or crime. Well, but that's the, that's some, some of the worst enemies of a, of a rich relationship with Christ aren't obviously bad things. Are, are you with me? I mean, if you're getting drunk all the time, you could say, yeah, probably I should stop that. That probably is, probably is tripping me up in my Christian life. But what if all your life goes into, I hesitate to name it because I'm not saying that any of these things are things nobody can do, but often the worst thing is a good thing in the wrong perspective. Do you follow me? So can family and family activities, can sports, can leisure, can recreation, can literature and culture, can those things be enemies to our spiritual life? Yes, they can. Any one of them can be. And that's what we need to look at. The singular focus is essential. I tell you, friend, the world will constantly wave shiny objects at us. Oh, look at this. Oh, this thing. Oh, don't you need this? Oh, think of what this would do for you. And if you're like me, distraction is a constant struggle and a constant problem. And this calls us to a singular focus of mind and affection on Jesus Christ. So we must uh, must seek Him with focused mind. Secondly, we must seek Christ with forward motion. With forward motion. See, that was probably a good idea to cut this into two sermons. That was just the first point of the first point. (laughs) So we must seek Christ with forward motion. Turn to John chapter 8 with me here, please. Matthew, Mark, Luke. John. This is a rather riveting little little exchange here. Verses 31 and 32. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Now, it's important that we notice that John tells us Expressly that he's saying these things to Jews who had made some kind of profession of faith. And my, my, we're going to find a good cautionary illustration as well as instruction in this story. So he, John describes them as Jews who'd believed him, but immediately after these words, they start arguing with him and end up saying that he has a demon and questioning his parentage, suggesting he was illegitimate. Wh- what? What? these are Jews who believed him? Well, yes, they had made a profession of faith. And if you read commentaries, you find a lot of them trip up here and say, well, obviously the, the second group is a different group. Oh, whew, okay. That's a lot easier to interpret now. But the trouble is John, John was at pains to tell us that no, these words are addressed to Jews who would in some way profess faith in him. They said they were believers. And so Jesus said what should be a a, a little basic statement beyond all argument. It really should be, shouldn't it? He says, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Well, I mean, that's not terribly controversial, is it? Yet it was to them, because it insulted their pride. You said, make us free. We've never been slaves. Really? You've never been slaves? Uh, Egypt, Assyria, uh, uh, Babylon, uh, Greece, uh, Rome, everywhere. <laughs> Look at your coins. Whose image is that? And yet, no, we've never been slaves, they say. Well, he, he, he pricked their pride. Valerie uh, is probably even thinking about a memory. I, I preached these two verses at a church once. And just made some simple points. And it caused a big controversy decades ago. Probably not a good sign. Well, so Jesus Jesus said here, if you continue in my words. Obviously, they didn't continue in his words very far, did they? They didn't make it to the end of this sentence. (laughs) So no, they didn't continue in his words. That's the meaning of the word abide. It means to, to continue, to move on. Uh, There's only two options when it comes to Jesus' Word. Either we continue in His words so that we're conformed to Him, or we conform to the world and leave His words. But it's binary. There's just the two choices. And they obviously chose to go back to the way of the world. So if you continue in my Word, what does that mean? That word continue. That has the idea of staying in it, remaining in it, persisting in it, what does it mean to continue in the Word of Jesus? To check the box saying, I believe in Jesus' Word? Good start. But no, continuing requires... Oh, I don't know. What's the word that I'm looking for? Continuing or abiding? Yeah. Continuing requires a continuing. Advancing, growing, deepening, moving on. Overcomers continue in the Word so they don't conform to the world. You see how important this is. Conversion is only the beginning of the spiritual life, and if it's not only the beginning, then it never happened. That's a little denser than it may sound. Conversion begins our Christian life, but if that's all we've gotten, it didn't really begin anything, pfft, that wasn't conversion. So you see, somebody says, uh, How long? Have you been married? Well, I've been married 30 years. 30 years ago, I said, I do. Okay, what have you learned of your wife? How's your marriage going? Haven't seen her since. <laughs> what? <laughs> you, you what? What, well, I'm very happily married. Never any arguments. But that's not <laughs> marriage that you just described. That saying, I do thing you mentioned, that's just the beginning of your relationship. Oh, I wish someone had explained that to me 30 years ago. But there are people who I think would have to say if they were honest about themselves and knew the truth, I wish someone had explained to me what it meant to become a Christian because I kind of thought conversion was it. Saying the prayer, signing a card, walking the aisle. I thought that was it. Well, think about this. That's what I want to talk with you about. When we're converted, Jesus commands us to be baptized by immersion. What does that confess? What does that depict? I've died to my old life and I've begun a new life. Now, if the picture were you go underwater, you come back up for a second and go right back down under, that may be a better picture of what some people think Christianity is. You follow me? But you go under the water, you come back up, and that's your life now. A new life, a life in Christ. Christ Christ-centered thinking, Christ-centered values, Christ-centered choices, Christ-centered actions. Imagine that I come in for my I, I've got a secular job somewhere, and I come in for my 20-year uh, employee review. I was hired in, what's the math here, uh, 2003. I can do that. I was hired in 2003. It's my 20-year review. And they say, well, Mr. Phillips, thank you for being such a loyal in, uh, employee all these years. Tell us, what are your accomplishments in the last 20 years? And I say, I was hired in 2003. And they say, well, that, that's great. Um, What new skills have you acquired? How have you developed since then? How have you improved as an employee? And I say, 20 glorious years. Yes, sir. 20 years right in the hopper. Yes, sir. And they say, okay, maybe we're not being clear. Uh, How have you brought profit to the company? How have you improved the company? How have you served the company as an employee? And I say, starting my third decade. You'd say, well, you're uh, fired, <laughs> is the word I'm thinking. You're fired. You've never done anything for us. All you're thinking about is the day you were hired. But that should have started your employment with our company. It's not the sum of your employment. And I'm afraid that one of the bad things of the emphasis on making a decision, walking an aisle, praying the prayer, is that we think that's everything. That That, that moment of conversion, that's everything. And what happens after that doesn't really matter. No, that's not true. The beginning is the beginning. It needs to be a beginning. And so I'd ask us to ask ourselves, what would our job review be? Would we, would, you know, how have you grown as a Christian? What have you learned as a Christian? Uh, how, how have you advanced in your walk with Christ? And our answer is, I was converted three years ago, 30 years ago, 13 years ago. Okay, well, what have you learned since then? Yep, yep. Uh, 1993, I remember that day well. What have you learned of Christ since then? How have you deepened in your love for him? Yeah, 30 years as a Christian. Boy, 30 years, man, it's a long time. Okay, what are the books of the Bible? Let's start there. What are the four Gospels? What verses have you memorized? When did you get baptized? When did you join a church? That's just a critical thing in the New Testament. Did you find a faithful church and put yourself under its discipline as a member? When did you do that? How, how have you served since doing that? What ministries in that church depend on you? What what trials have you walked through with Christ? Who have you witnessed to? What what is the way that you tell people about Christ? Take me to Scripture and show me about Christ from Scripture. Show me the way of salvation from Scripture. Show me why I need to be saved, how I'm saved, what I need to be do and what I need to do to be saved from Scripture. Show me those things. And if the answer to every one of those questions is, yep, eight years old, I was saved. Twenty years old, I was baptized. Yep, walked the aisle X years ago or quietly prayed to receive Christ in my pew. It doesn't matter how you did it. And that's all. Well, I'd suggest that's not conversion. Conversion begins a life with Christ. And if a life with Christ doesn't follow, then guess what hasn't happened? Conversion. So if we believe in Christ, as we say we do, what does Christ say we must do? Continue in His Word. Abide in His Word. Deepen in His Word. Mature. Learn. Be transformed. Grow. Grow stronger. Grow more fruitful. These are all things to expect when somebody grows in His Word as he will do if he continues in His Word. Now, seriously... Ask yourself, why why would we not continue in His Word? If we believe what we say we believe, why would we not continue in His Word? Have I learned everything there is to know about Jesus? No, that's untrackable, that's unsearchable. We will never get done learning all there is to learn of Jesus. Never. Well, is there nothing in Jesus that draws us, that compels us, that attracts us, that's lovely to us, desirable to us? Do we see nothing of that in Christ? That's a real problem if the honest answer is yes. That's a serious get on this right now problem if the answer to that is yes. Can we, oh, we don't seek Christ because I've already been set free from all sin and error. Well, okay, I got one that I know you haven't been set free from. You're lying. None of us has been set free from all sin and error. So again, seriously, why would we continue? Why would we deepen and advance in our walk with Christ, in our grasp of his word and, and the degree to which his word grasps us? Why would we? Well, isn't Jesus altogether magnificent? Amen. Is are not all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge hidden in him? Is he not our life? Is he not the truth? Is he not our hope? Is Jesus not more precious than the best gifts that the world can offer? A a Christian who can't hardly say yes has something that we should deal with with God. Do we have a better friend, a more faithful friend, a, a more trustworthy, confident, and guide and master? No, we don't. So this is what we're called to. And this is the application of that truth. And and if our lives deny what our lips profess, nobody's going to believe our lips Till our lives say amen to what our lips say. And the trouble is with many Christians, their lips don't even say it. I mean, isn't that just the honest truth? But Scripture calls us to such better, such higher. Christ has made possible such better, such higher. Christ has made imperative such better, such higher. So with focused mind and uh, with forward motion and then thirdly, we must be seeking with fervent motivation. With fervent, F-E-R-V-E-N-T, motivation. Fervent meaning passionate, hearty, enthused. So let's first look at some scripture and then let's talk about it. Let's lay the basis in scripture first. I'll read to you, because it's so short, Romans 12.11, but of course, make sure it's jotted down. Romans 12.11, amidst a number of exhortations, Paul says that we should be not lagging behind in diligence, being fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Now, I look at the Greek and, and would translate it very literally, as to diligence, not lazy or sluggish, as to spirit, burning, bubbling, boiling. As to the Lord being slaves, so let's focus on that middle middle clause. Just three words in Greek: uh, being fervent in spirit. The LSB says, "What does that mean?" Well, that word, being fervent, is actually it's 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 a it's a verb. It's a participle. It's something that's to be ongoing, and the meaning of the word is to be hot. That's literally the meaning of the Greek word. <coughs> pardon me. Pardon me. To be hot. To be bubbling to be boiling, to be zealous. What's the opposite of the idea? Well, the opposite is somebody who's cold, emotionless, distant, apathetic, disengaged. This is the opposite of that. This is the opposite of that. And so there was an expression when I was a young Christian that sadly and maybe significantly you don't hear anymore very much. But boy, I heard it a lot and said it a lot when I was a young Christian back in the 70s. We'd talk about somebody being on fire for the Lord and that's actually a good expression. It's actually the idea that's here, being on fire for the Lord. What does that mean? Well, it means that he was enthusiastic. He was all in with his walk in Christ. It wasn't a casual, sometimes when it's convenient, and I have nothing better to do thing for him. Jesus was everything to him. And all of us young Christians sought to be that. I'm I'm always concerned when somebody professes Christ and there is no at least beginning ardor for Christ. Well, we all sought that to be a continual thing, and that's what I see here, that it should be a continuing thing. We should be on fire in our spirit. Uh, This very word is used of Apollos in Acts chapter 18. I'll, I'll just read this to you. Apollos, even before he was instructed more accurately in the way of the Lord, he already was this man. This man Luke writes, had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, there's the word, there's the phrase, being fervent in spirit, he did what? He sat at home watching TV all the time. That's all he did all that. No, being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John, and he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. Now, the picture of this man is he had been taught a lot of truth. And he took all the truth that he knew, and he went out and spread it all the the best he could. He went everywhere he could, explaining it, arguing for it, presenting it with everything he had. Even though, Luke makes clear, he didn't have the whole picture yet. But the picture he had, he put everywhere. In fact, he went to the synagogue of the Jews, which is a, a very dangerous place to take this. And yet he did. And then Aquila and Priscilla took him aside and and, uh, explained the way of the Lord more accurately to him. And he went out and preached that. So here's a Christian with the whole 66 books. (laughs) Apollos had what? He had like up to Matthew chapter three. (laughs) That's about what he had, right? And he went out and he preached all that. But now we've got all the rest of the story. And what do we do with it? Now we're called to be on fire. We're called to be fervent. We're called to be boiling and bubbling. It's something to look back at the Old Testament and again see somebody living before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, before the fulfillment of of the plan of God in the death and resurrection of Christ. Before that and still showing this in the words we read at the start of the service, Psalm 63. Psalm 63, O God, You are my God. I shall seek You earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land without water. Wow, you've been in the desert. You understand that picture, and it's a very vivid picture. I'm like a guy in the middle of the Mojave without a canteen, and all I can think about is water, 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 Uh, water. And so he's saying, that's the way I am about God. Oh, the Lord, oh, be close to the Lord. Oh, the glory and beauty of the Lord, I must be close to Him. I must seek after Him. I yearn to be close to Him. That was his spirit, and so David expresses it in Psalm one o three. Psalm one o three, he 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 doesn't just say, just wait for that mood to come on him which I'm sure maybe somebody's thinking, listening to this thing, boy, you know, I wish I could feel that way. Hopefully one day I will. Well, David didn't leave it to that. Psalm 103, you know these words, but have you thought of them in this connection? Bless Yahweh, oh my soul. So what does David do? He does that thing that we can do that our doggy can't do. He gets outside of himself, faces himself, and preaches to himself. He exhorts himself. He, he, he looks at his lazy, indifferent, a cold self, and he says, bless Yahweh, O oh my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Everything is to go into that, and he's not going to rest until he gets himself to worship God that way. And what is the fodder for this? He says, bless Yahweh, O oh my soul, and forget none of his benefits. And you might say, well, I can't think of many offhand. Ah, oh, then there's a good reason to study Scripture. Study Scripture, and you will see an endless list of benefits to think about when we have moments and when we find moments. Now, that's before Pentecost. Let's look at a post-Pentecost believer. And who better than Paul? Turn to Philippians 3, by which I mean Philippians 1. But if you turn to 3, you'd be so close to 1. So it works out. Philippians chapter 1, languishing in prison. Here's what Paul says. Philippians 1, 20 and 21. According to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, no shrinking back, no hesitation, no shyness here, with all boldness, Christ will be, even now as always, magnified in my body, whether by life or by death, for me to live as Christ and to die is, grain, is gain, not grain, is gain. Very important difference there. To die is gain. Uh, in Greek, that kind of rhymes, making me think that Paul repeated that to himself again and again. "Emoi gar to Christos kai to apo thanein kerdos." You can hear that. "Emoi gar to Christos kai to apo thanein kerdos." To me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But what does it mean to live? is Christ that means to know him to walk with him to seek after him so that what verse 20 he's magnified in my body now what does that mean that Christ isn't big and I make him big by my body is that what that means no no it means he is big and I show how big he is by my body. And why does he say body? Well, because he's, he's debating whether it'd be better to die and go with Christ or to stay and, and labor for Christ. In his conclusion, it's better to stay because here I can use my body to magnify Christ, meaning to show how big he is to the world, to show people how great and how glorious he is. And obviously you're not going to do that with a tepid, indifferent, bored distant heart. We're not going to do that that way. It's going to take a fervent heart that sees Christ as His glory if we're going to make people see just how glorious He is. Look again at chapter 3. Now, really chapter 3, I mean it. I'm not just kidding this time. By 3, I mean 3. Chapter 3, he's listed off his resume to the world, and then he says in verse 7, but Whatever things I count excuse me, but whatever things were gained to me before Christ, these things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Well, it's like he's thinking of that parable, isn't it? I found that pearl, I found that treasure, and I just went off and sold everything because I'd found Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Could anyone who knows us look at our life and say, yes, I can see Christ is everything to him. I can see Christ is worth more than anything else to him. I can see that. Well, I I think it's safe to say that we could see it if we looked at Paul in his life. And, and verse 14, I press on toward the goal of for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Well, wow, everything we just looked at is kind of in that verse, isn't it? He's looking upward where, where, where uh, Christ is, and he's pressing on. He's remaining in Christ's word and growing and continuing and deepening in it. It's all there. And these are themes that echo again and again in different ways through Scripture. This is the heart of being an overcomer, seeking with a focused mind, seeking with forward motion, and seeking with fervent motivation. So you say spiritual reflections. I think you've already reflected. Well, I'm gonna reflect a little bit more <laughs> with your permission. So what does scripture say? Here's a little test. Does, does scripture say you shall love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, and mind? Is that what scripture says? It's a kind of a tricky question. Oh, see, I, I can't pull it over on you guys. I cannot pull it over on you. But, you know, that's an important word, isn't it? (laughs) Because otherwise, I could love the Lord my God with my heart, soul, and mind, and also love the world with my heart, soul, and mind. And the flesh and the devil, right? He's got him. They've got him. Spread it around. I'm generous that way. But what does that verse say? You got it. All your heart, all your soul, all your strength all your mind, all your understanding, all. This is the way we're called to love God. And the world is not overcome by anybody who loves God and it equally. That's not a world overcomer. That's overcome by the world. The world is only overcome by somebody who loves God and not it. Am I on good ground? 1 John two fifteen. what does it say? Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the Father, I'm sorry, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him, John says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. And we saw last week how James says in James 4, 4 What does he say to people? What does he call people who are trying to be friends of the world and God? What does he call them? You adulteresses, he says. Oh, what's an adulteress? Someone who has pledged love solely to one spouse, but is now loving another, faithless. He calls us adulteresses. If having pledged our love to God, we try to cozy up to the world. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Not just not giving God his due, but it's active hatred against him. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world sets himself as an enemy of God. Oh, I just, so many people I I had respected as leaders. I just want to send them this verse if I could. This desire to be the world's friend is not a godly desire and it's not good for you and it's not wise, and it's not adorning to your testimony. You need to get used to the fact that as Jesus said, if the world hated me, what's the next part? We'll hate you. So has the world decided it loves Jesus after all? Well, the world loves Jesus, doesn't it? The world loves Jesus, as long as they can describe what Jesus is and don't have to get stuck with Scripture. But the real Jesus, actual Jesus, does the world love actual Jesus? Never has, never will. Until it's a new world. Until it's a new world. So I just again ask your conscience, my conscience, believe me, I ask both of us, I ask is there anything more shameful and dishonoring, is there anything more shameful and dishonoring than being lukewarm about Jesus? Than being half-hearted about Jesus? Than being less than fervent about Jesus? We think in our day, well that's just normal Christian living. And that's a sign of what's wrong with our day. That's not normal, healthy Christian living. The solution is, is what? Well, it's to look full in his wonderful face. The solution is not just to feel guilty and certainly not to get wrapped up in... I just want to tell you that that's Satan's game. And let me point it out. If you've felt convicted by this, as I have, I just want to tell you Satan's thing, just remind you, and I'll remind you and remind you as long as I'm your pastor. Satan's thing is to tell you, you absolutely need this. And then once we get it, he says, and you call yourself a Christian. I and mean, that's his thing. His whole thing is to keep us from God. So if he can get us into any sin and then keep us bound in the guilt over that sin. So we feel conviction. Well, there's one thing to do. I have great news. We have a Savior who still forgives sin. And Scripture says that if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Paul, John says, I write these things to you that you may not sin, but what are his immediate next words? But if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. So go to your advocate. Go to the Lord and say, I was pricked by your word today. Don't wait till tonight. Do it after the, right after the service. Do it now. Begin it now. I was pricked by your word today. I want you to help me to do something about it. I want you to draw me close to you. Help me to see you in the glory and beauty that you deserve. And I want to talk about that now. I want to close talking about that in just a moment. But, but before we get there, that's where we'll end. Before we get there, I just want to make sure we don't think it's normal and okay to be indifferent towards Jesus. That is not healthy living. And I just, let's begin towards the solution to this by saying, uh, what is the solution? Uh, say you're cold. What's a good way to get warm? Get close to something that's warm. <laughs> get close to something that's warm. What makes a pot boil? We said boiling in spirit. Well, what makes a pot boil? Being over a flame. Being over a hot flame. And so what's going to make our cold hearts warm? Get close to Jesus. Draw close to Jesus. Use every means that God has given us. For one thing, we should fill our minds with his word because Jesus says that's the key. John 14, 21. We looked at it last week. John 14, 21. He who has my commandment, My commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and will disclose myself to him. So that means as I treasure his word in my heart, he draws close to me and discloses himself to me. But something additional to the word? Not at all. He, as Psalm 119 prays, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things out of thy law. And so likewise, as I continue and meditate on his word, he comes and opens his word to me as he did with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. He opens their heart. And as Jesus opens the heart, their hearts burn within them. And so as we treasure his words, Jesus draws close to us to cause our hearts to burn within us, to to bring us warmth by his presence. John 15, 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Continue in His Word. Fill our hearts with His Word. That is how we get to know Jesus. That's how we get the warmth of Jesus and the the fire of Jesus. We get the warmth by drawing close to Jesus. And then also pray. This is not something that can be done by self-will. It is not something that can be done by determination. That's the world's way. Yes, we are called to make decisions. Yes, we're called to make commitments but not on our own. Let me show you. Turn to Psalm 119 with me. There are a number of verses like this in Scripture but I'll just single out a few. Right in the middle of your Bible, or should be, Psalm 119, you know that psalm. It's all about the Word of God. But look at these few verses with me. Look at verse 25. That, verse, that, that psalm, yes, it has a lot of statements about the Word of God, but did you ever notice how many prayers are in this psalm? This psalm is filled with prayers. And here's one of them, verse 25. Oops, sorry. Psalm 119.25, he prays, my soul clings to the dust. Revive me according to your word. Now, what, is, what does my soul, soul clings to the dust depict? Somebody who's worn out and wasted and languishing. Is, is that the way you feel? Christians get to feeling that way. Like we're just laid out in the dust. What should we do? Just resign ourselves and die? Or just say, well, this is normal Christian living? Well, he doesn't. He doesn't, the living before Pentecost and Calvary. He prays, revive me according to your word. And that word revive, the Greek uh, Hebrew word chayeni, just means give me life, make me alive. Oh, the Puritans would make such great profit from verses like this. And the, you think of the Puritans as being ardent, but the reason why they were ardent is because they, didn't, they never settled for a cold heart. And you see them constantly praying and confessing the coldness of their heart. Oh, if I could have a heart half as cold as one of their hearts. Uh, they're, they're, those are, those are red-hot saints. But they didn't tolerate coldness of heart. And they would take a verse like this and take it to God. Look, here's the way to think about this, Christian friend. My soul clings to the dust. Revive me according to your word. Make me alive according to your word. Now, ask you an office. This is not a trick question. Where is that verse found? Do you find it in the newspaper? Do you find a fortune cookie? Where do you find that verse In the Bible, I heard that, in the Bible. It wasn't a trick question, I told you. It's in the Bible. What is the Bible? The Word of God. So I've got this in my hand. God told me He wants me to have this. So what does this tell me I should do? I should take this verse, and I should bring it to God, and I should say, you told me to pray this way. You encouraged me to pray this way, and I know that a father whose son says, give me an egg, is not going to give him a rock. He says, give me some bread. He's not going to give him a stone or an adder or or, or something. He's going to give him what he needs. So I'm taking this word of yours and I'm praying as it says, make me alive according to your word. I'm I'm languishing in the dust. My heart is cold. It's uncaring. It's distant. I don't want that. That's not right. And, And it's not glorifying to you. You don't deserve me to be that way. Revive me according to your word. I'm bringing this, I'm cashing this in. That's the way Spurgeon would speak of the checkbook of the bank of faith. Take these promises and you take them to heaven and they'll all be good, he said. Next one, verse 37. Oh, this is such a good one. If you are half as plagued by distractedness as I am, I am a miserably distractible person. It's amazing I ever got anything done in my entire life I'm so distractible. And look at this verse. Cause my eyes to turn away from looking at worthlessness. <laughs> oh boy, is that a great prayer? Cause my eyes to. Well, what is worthlessness? The world. Cause my eyes to turn away from worthlessness and revive me in your ways. There it is again. Make me alive in your ways, not the ways of the world. One more, verse 175. Psalm 119, 175. Let my soul live. There it is again. I'm dead and cold and distant, but let my soul live that it may praise you and let your judgments help me. So there we go. Fill our hearts with the word of God and then take that word to God in prayer and petition his aid. This is the way to have a godly, fervent heart. Get close to the flame. And the way to do that is by God's word and through prayer. So just to wrap it together, negatively, we, can't, we cannot overcome the world by loving and seeking what it loves and seeks, or by trying to do it better than the world does. That does not overcome the world. But then we can also say, oh, okay, well, I just don't care about what the world cares about. There we go. Now I'm done. I've overcome it. No, it's not just putting off. The way we overcome the world is by earnestly desiring and seeking Christ. Christ. At the right hand of God, actively, persistently, with affection, with focus, with all our hearts. God, give us this vital, living, fervent faith. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word, for its clarity. We were indeed warned that it's sharper than a two-edged sword, and so it is proven. And we thank You just for the glories and wonders of Christ, His person, His work. Thank You for the invitation to come boldly to the throne of grace, to seek grace, to help and find mercy in time of need. And oh, do we need grace, and oh, do we need mercy. Oh, Father, give us, give us warm, fervent hearts towards Christ. Make it, make it obvious to all, uh, heaven and earth, that Jesus is worth loving. Magnify him through us. We pray, we pray. You'll hear our prayers and grant it for Jesus' sake and in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please?